Hi, I'm Daniel Budai, and this is the Ecom Show, a podcast where you can learn more about the world of high-performing e-commerce players and marketers. The show is brought to you by the team of Budai Media. Let's grow your e-commerce business together. Hey everyone, here is Daniel Budai with another episode of our Ecom show. And uh, today I'm here with uh, Raj Data from uh, the US. And uh, he's the founder of uh, Bloomreach, a uh, commerce experience platform. And uh, we connected a few weeks ago. Raj is a really uh, interesting person with a really ver- versatile uh, experience. On Amazon, you can find his book, The Digital Seeker, a guide for digital teams to build winning experiences. Uh, hey, Raj, how are you today? I'm doing great. It's great to be with you here. Yeah, so um, before we jump into Bloomreach and uh, why it's a unique uh, platform, uh, please tell us more about your personal background and I'm also curious about your book, what it is about, and um, you know, what was your motivation to write a book? Yeah, so I'm happy to, to start. My background is I, I grew up in India and in the Philippines, so I grew up in Asia for most of my life, and then came to the U.S. for university and, and stayed on here, spent several years in Europe uh, as well, and, and after, um, after an undergraduate degree in, in engineering, um, I uh, and an MBA. I sp- I've spent most of my career really being an entrepreneur, um, and so for the last twenty plus years, I've been involved in three ventures. I would say um, an early stage venture in Europe that was about bringing broadband uh, connections to to hundred cities in Europe. Uh, a second venture, which was in the uh, load balancing space, that was mostly built out at, at Cisco Systems, and then a third. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is, is Bloomreach. And so, you know, I've been an entrepreneur three times. I have all the scars that, that come with being uh, an, a multiple-time entrepreneur. I live here in Silicon Valley with, with two kids and, and my wife and, um, you know, try to do what I can to, to build these businesses and have, you know, lots of other interests in, in public policy. And in, in, uh, I'm very involved with the tennis community in, in the United States. And so I, I get nice. involved with that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I just have a lot of fun you know, building, building out this, this, uh, this third venture Bloomreach. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, and please tell us more about the book. What, what yeah. is it about? So the book is, is called The Digital Seeker. And really, I wrote the book because we at Bloomreach are fortunate to power almost a quarter of e-commerce in the U.S. and the U.K. And so, so many digital leaders would call me and say, what makes the winners win and what makes the losers lose? Uh, yeah. And... Uh, and so I wrote the book to answer that question, and that's what, what it is. And, and I wrote it, you know, certainly it was a personal goal to write a book, but mostly I wanted to provide some insight on that question. And I didn't know the pandemic would hit, of course, during, during that period of time. But after, as we've gone through the pandemic, of course, e-commerce has become mission critical and even more important. And really the thesis of the book, if I were to summarize it, is that great digital experiences are built for the seeker, not the customer. And that's counterintuitive because we've heard about customer centricity now for so many years. But it turns out that Amazon has trained us all to do all the hard work of figuring out what we want to buy and then just go to Amazon and look for it and buy it. But the deeper winners in sector after sector after sector across healthcare and finance and fashion and, and home goods and so on and so forth, they don't just stop 
at satisfying the customer. They really ask the question, what is the customer seeking? So I might be interested in uh, a dress, in buying a dress, but really what I'm interested in, in doing is expressing my style. Or I might be interested in buying some wood, but really what I'm interested in is building a deck to entertain my friends. And so when you understand the underlying motivation of the purchase or what somebody is seeking and you build the digital experience for that, that's what the winners do. And the book is a chronicle of stories about okay. people who succeed in doing that. Yeah, so as a marketer, I would translate it into, so basically these winner companies or winning companies, they don't just... Uh, as you said, satisfy the customer's needs, but they also look for the underlying uh, needs and, and what they want uh, very deeply. And the thing is, uh, there aren't many. So we are uh, simple creatures and uh, we want only a few things in life. Uh, if we really go to the core, uh, one of them is status, as you said, uh, what you can express with your uh, dress or, or clothing so yeah it's really interesting yeah you know i mean we can use some examples to talk to make it very real so if you if you you know to use one of one of the bloomridge clients which which is in europe which is bayern munich the the football club that many mm -hmm. many of us know you know we started working with bayern munich and they were we think of them as a as a football club from from uh bavaria but um you know what they realize is that their fan base is global and really in many ways, what their fans, they may be interested in buying jerseys or attending games, but actually what they're interested in is living with, with the team every day and every, every waking minute. And that's really what they're interested in. And so they build so much virtual reality capabilities, a hackathon, a rich website, and the ability to participate in a game and have augmented reality to buy a jersey of your favorite player as a part of that experience even if you're in New York, to feel like you're in, um, in the stadium yourself. And so they recognize that that's really what the fan is seeking, not just, okay, you know, tell me the news of whether or not the team won the game or not. Uh, yep. And they've, they've, they've succeeded digitally in a way that, that has been you know, very profound. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So let's uh, start talking about Bloomreach. Uh, when was the company founded? The company was founded in 2009, so it's, it's been around now for 12 years, um, and it's been a fantastic journey to gradually build the platform that powers digital experiences across e-commerce. And we think of what Bloomreach is as an e-commerce experience platform because in many ways, e-commerce is a 20-year-old industry at this point. Yeah. And so the first 20 years, what has been happening? People have basically been putting up storefronts okay, now my brand, you can buy it online. That has been the story of e-commerce. And we've seen great software platforms, including one that went public today, Vtex, that, uh, that do that and do a great job of getting people online and enabling people you know, to build storefronts. But just because I build an e-commerce store doesn't mean anybody's gonna come and shop with me. They could just as well go to Amazon or some other property to go buy. So Bloomreach is about helping the e-commerce brand stand out and capture incremental growth on top of the property that they have by delivering a highly unique personalized experience so that it's memorable and it's more likely that people will come back and shop more. Okay, and what are those features that can uh, enable this very customized, personalized experience? Maybe yeah. a few, if you can yeah. name them. So we have, we have three core, um, 
what we call pillars of the platform. The first is engagement, which is marketing software and personalized customer data platform to enable somebody to run personalized marketing campaign so that every email interaction, every SMS, every ad copy is highly personalized uh, and because it's built off of a customer platform, customer data platform. And that's the first part. That's to engage somebody to the brand. Then a great content platform, because once you've engaged the customer and they've come into the website, then you want to inspire them to buy. So we have a great content platform that is very tuned into e-commerce that enables somebody to say, okay, this is an inspirational view of your sofa in a living room or other such things or other video assets or manuals in a B2B commerce sense. And then finally, the third part of the platform is what we call discovery, which is now I've decided to buy the sofa or the dress, help me find the right one. And so it includes great search technology, great uh, navigation and merchandising technology to guide me to exactly the right product. Those are the three parts of the platform. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> I know the history of uh, a few other e-commerce platforms. So Shopify was started, I think, around 2004, something like that. Uh, we just had a call with uh, Big Commerce. They started, I think, the same year, year, year as you started, 2009. Yeah. Um, and they started 10 plus years ago, 10, 15 years ago. And... I'm sure their USP is different than back then. Yeah. Uh, I guess you also had a few pivots in the last 10 plus years. And I'm just really curious what were those big changes in the industry and pivots that you had to make to be where you are now. Yeah, and, and our journey, just like Shopify and Big Commerce, has been a journey that has accompanied the growth of e-commerce in many ways. And those companies started more with SMBs, with smaller businesses. Bloomreed started more with medium and larger businesses as we went through the journey. But the biggest pivots or changes have really been in adding major capabilities to the platform. Because when Bloomreed started, it was very much a search company. It was very much uh, a team of people from Google that was doing different applications of search, recommendations, SEO, search. And the journey to build the entire platform to power marketing, to power content, to power merchandising, that was really what was built over this last several years. And we did that because at the end of the day, when we were talking to VPs of e-commerce, they were simply interested in increased conversion rate. And you, you have many different ways by which you can do that so that the quality of the interactions improve all through the customer journey. Mm -hmm. So if I understand well, this platform is mostly for uh, enterprise or, or middle-sized e-commerce companies. That's right. And we think of it as, you know, if you're, uh, you know, 20, $25 million of GMV and above. So you have some baseline of uh, shopping shoppers who are coming to your property. And now you're looking to grow and you're saying, oh, the experience doesn't seem very good here. The marketing programs are not working quite as efficiently the content is not inspirational, the website does not feel unique, or the, the, the search is poor. That's when people call us. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I guess you are pretty strong on search, right? Because of your past. Um, I know a uh, local company here in Central Europe and they, uh, they focus on that with enterprise level uh, clients as well, because it's really, um, it's an underserved market, let's say. And, and, and e-commerce, e yeah, I was just going to say e-commerce search is hard. It's, um, you know, to, when people are shopping and they're looking mm -hmm. for something very specific, 
it's not the same thing as just going to Google and looking for the distance from the earth to the moon. They're, they're looking yeah. for very specific attributes, specific products. And our innovation has really been in using data science and machine learning technology to deeply understand the intent of the customer and self-learn. The way I describe it is our search engine is getting better while you're sleeping at night. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk about the pandemic. So what, uh, what's your experience? Um, what happened during COVID with e-commerce and what could you see with your clients? What, are, what were the negative and positive effects? Yeah, I think what we've been through is, you know, the phases of the pandemic. And of course, this happened in a rolling way across different geographies at slightly different times. But yeah. the first phase of the pandemic, I would just describe as complete panic uh, because everybody was worried about people getting COVID on their teams. Supply chains were breaking. Websites were breaking. People didn't know if they would have cash flow as stores were shutting down. That was the first phase of it. Gradually, as we got into, you know, kind of the, the summer of last year and the late spring of last year, people started to realize e-commerce is taking off. And, and almost every metric for us, we saw API call growth of almost 100% year over year. And, we, and that story has repeated in many different e-commerce properties, including Shopify and others, where everybody came online, which present, created different challenges. All of a sudden, the scalability of the systems were at issue. People yeah. didn't have products to present. There weren't people to fulfill all kinds of other downstream problems. So we as a technology community scrambled to support that, you know, in an effective uh, way. Then we saw a lot of changing consumer behavior. And we saw that through the journey as well. The period when everybody was interested in toilet paper, then the period when everybody was interested in eggs and milk, and then the period where everybody was interested in haircutting equipment. And then the period, you know, and so we've seen different consumption patterns through, yeah. through the, the pandemic. And then I think that brings us to kind of the later stage of the pandemic, which is a bit of the new normal, which is really, we don't know exactly when things will return to normal, but we know that e-commerce is here to stay. And we're almost a year after we have seen year over year growth that's very high. And what's interesting is the sustainability of e-commerce. So what we've, in, you know, in, the, in the first year, what we saw was about 100% growth, which accelerated e-commerce adoption by about five to seven years. But we're still seeing growth on top of that, which basically means more and more areas that are underserved are, are continuing to, to accelerate. And for our business, that has created a lot of urgency among our customers to act. Uh, they're, they're what were projects that were important have now become urgent. Yeah, and uh, I, I totally agree that we jumped into the future by five, seven years uh, in just in one year because of the pandemic. Um, and e-commerce is still growing and it will be here. So, yeah, it's really interesting. Maybe any negative trends that you could see or maybe in any industries? Yeah, I think, I think first of all, it accelerated the negatives as much as it accelerated the positives. So those large real estate footprints of offline stores obviously suffered in an extraordinary you know, way. Um, and it accelerated either, either their demise or their restructuring in some fashion. It also, I think, um, has had a very deeply negative human impact as well. Um, you know, for, for store associates, unemployment, we see the bifurcation in, in the digital divide from an employment perspective where people with digital jobs do very well. People with non-digital jobs have had to bear the brunt, both from a health perspective as well as from a job perspective. 
So that's been deeply negative, I would, I would say. The productivity gains that we have seen from everybody working at home and, and elsewhere have been fantastic from an economic growth perspective, but obviously have created extraordinary mental health issues because we're just not ready as a society to not physically interact with each other. Yeah. Yeah, we're not built for that as human beings quite yet. So no doubt there have been there have been collateral effects that have been um, significant. And finally, I think that there's been um, it's very difficult to plan for this level of volatility for organizations. When when I see people planning for this holiday, they don't know what to expect. They really have no idea. Uh, and that's a real challenge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um... Apart from the human aspects uh, or, or, you know, employees and, and all of this, um, I could also see that the luxury products, the luxury industry, they uh, kind of suffered. Uh, we could see a few luxury fashion and jewelry clients and uh, people, they don't spend on it when they are in the quarantine or, you know, they sit at home. Um, This is definitely true. Um You know, I, and we saw that early, especially when China was was down because China is a big uh, source of luxury shopping. Yeah, that started to come back more recently. We're seeing luxury goods do pretty well. And I'll tell you a funny story, which is that we were working with a jewelry company, the online jewelry company, and, and they were not selling the same products like expensive necklaces and so on. But they were selling they were still selling a lot online. And I was wondering what was going on. So I. I spoke with the chief digital officer and what he told me was, yes, people are not buying jewelry for themselves, but because they're not able to uh, attend, you know, anniversaries and uh, graduations and birthdays, birthdays yeah. they're gifting a lot of jewelry, hmm. you know, this process in a way that's quite different. So it's hard to predict the human behavior clearly when, uh, when these kinds of events happen. Yeah, exactly. It's really hard. And uh, probably that's the time when you need good marketers and, and psychologists who understand human behavior. Um, I could see um, in a report that, uh, that you know, there are essential products and uh, I could see this category that new, new essentials. So basically even toilet paper, Health related products, supplements, these were the new essentials. Right. These were not as important before, but during the pandemic, everyone just ran for supplements, health related things. And uh, yes, fitness, yeah. fitness equipment, uh, fitness, exactly. Yeah, yeah. and even, even uh, entertainment and media equipment, you know, good TVs and good, yeah. uh, good computing devices and screens and so on. Yeah, yeah. So you shared uh, with us that you have uh, a great experience with uh, Europe and North America and you are from India. So I'm really curious, what are the differences between the continents? What can you see? How people buy, how they behave online and all of these patterns? Yeah, you know, I think, first of all, I think, um, you know, we're a lot more complicated as a, as a world than North America and Europe. That's one thing that I've realized within yeah. within America, California is pretty different than Oklahoma, and within Europe, you know, uh, Poland is pretty different than London. So, uh, so that's the yeah. first thing to, to say. What we have seen more generally, I think, is that um, it has really followed what has happened with the virus, and so you know the the hits were bigger in North America, 
but the economic resiliency in North America has been has been higher. Um, the mm -hmm. EU has, has taken a very long time to roll out the vaccine properly, and uh, the economic environment has been, uh, you know, has 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 not has not left things alone in quite the same way as in the U.S. So the negative in the U.S. is there have been many more deaths, and that that's terrible. But the positive in the U.S. has been that there have been fewer job losses and a more robust recovery. And so you see that in the data in shopping in general between the U.S. and Europe, almost almost certainly. We also see, you know, certain differences that just come from uh, the infrastructure, right? Big cities operating in one way where people are leaving the city and moving away versus versus smaller towns where more people are moving into and wanting wanting more space and operating uh, accordingly. You know, we saw we saw um, certain differences with respect to what people purchase and with what frequency they purchase, uh, for sure. It was slightly more conservative in, in Europe. It was slightly more aggressive, you know, in the U.S. in terms of spending levels and, and uh, yeah. online purchases. But all in, I think our, we have a very shared experience is what, what, I, what yeah. I see in a strange way. The pandemic should bring us more together because we realize what, you know, how much more is in common than apart. Yeah. Uh, how about India? I, I so, have very less information about that country. Yeah. So, you know, India has had an extraordinarily delayed uh, impact of COVID, right? So mm -hmm. early on, India was, was from, for much of the time when Europe was doing poorly and the U.S. was doing poorly, India was doing great. Uh, and in particular, the, the, the determination was that, you know, the, the country was, in fact, statements were being made that the country was immune. And there was lockdowns that were very hard on people, but very quickly the government realized they cannot lock down a country where the entire economy is basically offline. And so therefore they opened it back up and things seemed to be going pretty well. And then this this third COVID wave really struck in India in a very difficult way. And during the summer, right? Actually, I would say uh, even earlier than the summer, you know, yeah, around uh, March, April uh, timeframe. And so just as the Western economies were starting to be vaccinated, India had the worst period of its, uh, of its time. And the deaths were terrible. The oxid lack of oxygen was terrible. And then from an, from an economic perspective, you know, it was impossible for people to focus on anything other than, you know, family members. Uh, it's a place where most families would say either for us as a team, we have a large team in India as well. And I would say about half the team either directly had COVID or had a close family member that had COVID. Yeah, we also have team members, uh, yeah. now two people and... Uh... Yeah, we also have bad stories uh, with COVID. So, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, now it's much better in India, as far as I know. It is recovering, no question about it. Yeah. The last topic what I would uh, touch is uh, personalization. Um, and last time we talked about privacy, uh, machine learning and AI. You are in Silicon Valley, so you are in the best place uh, to develop those. Um, I'm not a tech guy, so, uh, you know, I don't know much about these um, tools, how they work, the, the tech side of, of these, but I know how to use them. So I'm really curious, um, 
how are these different and how do they work how um, your clients can um, use it properly well there's an entire chapter uh, in the digital seeker about uh, the, the technology stack of the future and AI features prominently in that chapter and and I would say AI has gone from a research activity to a production quality you know uh, solution that's available from almost every major cloud and, and solution so the question is if your technology is not using AI in some fashion then you're probably out of date yeah, because yeah. the scale of being able to deliver personalized interactions to hundreds of thousands or, or thousands or millions of customers at scale and matching them to what could be hundreds or thousands of products, only a machine can make that determination of what to put in front of somebody that increases the probability that they engage in buying. And so AI is at the core of it. Now, the question is, how do you use the AI in a productive fashion? And, and in, in my experience, the most interesting questions are not how sophisticated the AI is, but what value it, it ultimately provides for the consumer or for the customer uh, in a B2B context. And very often people uh, do not come back to those basic questions of what is the consumer seeking and how do I map that to what the machine can compute to put to determine what product or content or order they can fulfill using AI. And so my number one recommendation is don't get enamored by the technology. Ask yourself which AI-driven platform will uh, move the needle on my business because because the answer can be quite different between that. Yeah. And then yeah. there's questions around privacy, which which is also explored in the book. But you know, my biggest takeaway on the privacy side is yes, of course, we all understand GDPR and CCPA in North America and the need to protect private data. And there's been a lot of discussion about not collecting and not sharing data. And I agree with all of that. But the interesting topic is about the use of the data and not enough is discussed about that because you know why is there why are people so upset at facebook because they use the data to sell ads but why are people okay with spotify using the data because they use the data to give you better quality music both are using the same personalized information but quite different in terms of the use and so if you use data with permission to benefit the consumer it's fine for the most part if you yeah, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's not black and white because F Facebook still use it to have a good experience. Uh, right. And Spotify, they started their ads. Exactly. Uh, exactly. But still, I, I understand what you mean. So, yeah. Um, yeah, personally, I think people don't care too much about sharing their data until the reason is, you know, to give them a better experience. And it's just really positioning it in the eyes of the users. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting topic. Um, what do you think about the recent iOS changes? What Apple? I, 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 think, I think they're great. Um, you know, and uh, they certainly... the same. Yeah. They, they, they certainly challenge marketers to do things like attribution, but we are one of our pillars is customer data platform. And so we, we help, we help a lot of brands collect customer data. And I don't believe that um, at the end of the day, the fact that the Apple is not saying don't collect data. Apple is saying collect data with permissions that are first party in nature. Do not go buy random lists and spam people on random websites, uh, you know, and use cookies to do it. 
So that is something that we support at Bloomreach. That's it play, it, customer data platforms actually play a very key role in a cookie-less future. Because if you count cookie users, then you need a platform to ingest first-party customer data so that you can run campaigns and track. And so actually Facebook and us have a partnership to help uh, marketers understand the attribution of Facebook campaigns when they lose cookies on iOS devices. Yeah, I think the future is is first party data and uh, we have our clients uh, and potential clients coming to us that uh, we have a huge list of, uh, you know, uh, customers or subscribers from the same niche. They bought it somewhere and can we use it to send emails to them? Uh, number one, it's illegal in most countries. Number two, it doesn't make any sense. Like... Uh, we tried it in the past and zero results. Uh, we tried it in countries where it's uh, possible to do it and no results. Like pe people nowadays, they uh, they know who you are or if they don't know you, they don't want to hear about you. Uh, it's just that clear. People really know what they want nowadays on the internet. That's so right. yeah, I, I think this is the future really. Um, I, I agree totally. And, and we've seen strong demand for interest in our customer data platform because of the importance of first party data and needing to have a coherent data store that I can then use for all marketing channels to yeah. work yeah. in a personalized fashion because yeah. of this change. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, these are my questions. Is there anything that you would add? You know, I just think it's a really exciting time. Um, and uh, encourage people to take take a look at the book, The Digital Seeker, which really lays out, you know, the seeker centricity and what it means to capture the motivation of the customer, but more importantly, how to go about doing that with technology, with organizational structure, with different business models, uh, and with different approaches, marketing programs, uh, to to really get to the heart of the seeker and win big. So uh, encourage everybody to check out the book. It's now number four on the Wall Street Journal list of bestsellers uh, in uh, in business. Wow, it's amazing. Um, yeah, so thanks, Raj, for uh, coming into the show. And uh, if anyone wants to find you and your company, where they should go? They can go to bloomreach.com, B-L-O-O-M-R-E-A-C-H.com, and they can find me on LinkedIn. Yeah, and uh, check out uh, his book, The Digital Seeker on Amazon. And uh, thanks again. And thanks uh, everyone who listened to us today or later. And uh, every Thursday we are coming out with a new episode with an exciting guest from the world of e-commerce. Stay tuned. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Ecom Show podcast. If you want to learn more about e-commerce, retention marketing, check out our Facebook group called Top 3% E-Commerce Email Marketing or check out our website, thebudaimedia.com. The show is brought to you by the team of Budai Media. See you in our next episode and don't forget our goal. Grow your e-commerce business together.